0: reading comes from 1 Kings 16, 29 through 33. In the 38th year of Asha, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Noah. Well good morning everybody. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leawood campus and welcome. It's good to see, it's good to see you all. Uh, we are, if you, if you didn't put it together, we are starting a new series today uh, called With Us in the book of First Kings. And I almost feel like the first thing I need to do is apologize to you for just dropping you into the middle of a book like that. Uh, some of you maybe walked in and, you know, we just finished a, a series on Virtues and vices, you may be thinking, how did we get from that to, to, to this reading? What in the world is, is Andrew going to talk about? Well, let me tell you. Um, and, uh, well, actually, I'll get to the specifics of First Kings, the book itself, in, in a minute. But what I wanted to start by doing as we, as we enter this series is show that the world we're entering in, in 1 Kings. Uh, if, if you, read, you read scripture, and it, maybe it feels distant to you, it feels different. Uh, it's not, what I want to point out, it's not nearly as different from our world today as we think. So the, the world of First Kings, this is a time of great economic prosperity in Israel. Uh, and also at the same time, great spiritual emptiness and apathy. Uh, this is a time of uh, where God's word is considered increasingly irrelevant and incompatible with the culture uh, in Israel this is, at this time. This is a time of great political turmoil and violence and corruption. And it's a time of a lack of leadership and a lack of statesmanship, a time where God's people have no leader to bring them forward, to move them past their sins and weaknesses. And, and so I'm saying, does any of that sound familiar? Does any of that resonate with today? In the middle of all of that stuff, and there's more that we'll talk about later. In the middle of all of that stuff, is this faithful remnant of God's people in Israel. This remnant that want, that loves God and wants to follow and obey Him, and they have no idea how they're going to make it through. And they're wondering, is God is God still with us, or or are we alone? And, and you know, it's one thing if you're kind of in that mindset. If you're with us last fall, we did the Book of Daniel. Uh, It's one thing to be taken into exile into Babylon, which is what happens in Daniel. It's one thing to be transplanted from your homeland and put in another country. You know you're going to stand out. You know you're going to be weird there. You know you're not going to feel at home. But what happens when your own country and your own people and your own neighbors begin to destroy themselves from the inside out, even though they claim to love and worship the same God as you? you? What do you do? like, do you run for the hills and start a commune? You, you could do that. <laughs> do you try to build a coalition to, to regain power or some kind of political movement within the country to protect yourselves? You could do that. Or, you could, or do you join them, right? If you can't beat them, do you, do you join them? Do you go with them? What would, what would we do? And I say all that because when you, be, when you begin to grasp, the in that scenario, when you begin to grasp the fear and the confusion and the dread of that moment of that scenario, you're beginning to enter into the story of Elijah and Ahab, which are the two main characters of our, of our series with us this, this whole summer. And, and what we'll find over and over again is that Ahab personifies vice. He personifies what God's people are capable of doing when they stop listening to him and they disobey him. And Elijah personifies Virtue. Elijah personifies what God can do with people who listen and obey, even imperfectly, which Elijah is not perfect, and we'll see that. He's a life of virtue, and I, I, so I say all that. We have a lot of ground to cover. I'm not going to lie. So, let, um, just, even just to kind of get us caught up into the world of First Kings, this story we're entering. Uh, so, what I want to do this morning is, is kind of catch us up and, and prepare us for this whole series. And really draw three lessons, three observations from this story in particular that will really serve us for the entire series. That's what I want to do. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to 1 Kings chapter 16. It's in the first half of your Bible, kind of a third of the way through the book of uh, Kings. And if you don't know where it is, use your table of contents. That's what it's there for. That's okay. And uh, what I want to do is start, is kind of reorient us. So let's start in verse 29 again. Of chapter 16. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now I just put half of you asleep. I know that. That's why I stopped. Bear with me, okay? The the Bible, if you're not super familiar with it, it is 66 books kind of put together that are they're all very diverse but they tell one coherent story. And it's really hard to drop into a book like First Kings without some a basic reminder of what that big story is. So here's how the story begins, right in Genesis the first book, God creates a good world and he fills it with good people. And eventually those people choose to rebel against him and run from him. Okay, that's the first 3 chapters of this whole book. And the rest of this book is God's rescue plan to bring those people back. And as you can see, right, it's, it is not a, an easy fix <laughs> to right that wrong, right? There's a, there's a lot here of God's rescue plan. And so he, one of the first things God does after his peop, the people in the garden, Adam and Eve, when they rebel, after that, he finds a guy named Abraham. Maybe you've heard of Abraham before. And he tells Abraham, through you and your family, I am going to bless the world. I'm going to bless the nations. I'm going to create in you a nation, which was funny because he and his wife could not have children. He says, I'm going to create through you a nation to bless the entire world. And there's a whole story that goes along with that, but this is what happens. They have, Abraham has a son and his son has more kids and they have more kids and they have more kids and they have more kids and so, until eventually you have a whole nation from Abraham called Israel. And that should sound familiar. Israel is uh, in Egypt, right? They're enslaved by the Egyptians. You've seen the Charlton Heston movie, so you know that part of the story. So Israel's in Egypt. God uses Moses to save his people out of Egypt, and he brings them to the promised land. He gives them a land, a kingdom to call their own. But before he does that, he gives them the Torah, the law. And more specifically, he gives them the Ten Commandments. It's really the summary of the whole law. And God's charge to them, which goes all the way back to Abraham, is live this way. Live by my design. This is what human flourishing looks like. Live by these ten commandments. And the world will know me through you. You will represent me. And the nations will be drawn to your light. That was his design. That was his plan. And of course, being sinful Human beings, like the rest of us, Israel completely screws that up. <laughs> and here in First Kings, we're, we're a thousand years basically removed from Abraham and Moses and David and other people whose names you probably know. Right, and Israel has their own country now; they have their own kingdom and their own kings. And, and and if you thought having kings would help them obey, you were wrong. And that's really what the the book of First Kings is all about. Now, rather than listening to me bring you up to speed on the book of First Kings, I want you to watch a quick overview video. I promise it'll be more interesting than me trying to do that. So watch this quick
0: video on the book of Kings. The books of First and Second Kings, although they're two separate books in our Bibles, they were originally written as one book telling a unified story that continues on from the book of Samuel that came before it. So David has unified the tribes of Israel into a kingdom, and God promised that from his line would come a messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations and fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So the book of Kings tells the story of the long line of kings that came after David, and none of them lived up to that promise. In fact, they run the nation of Israel right into the ground. The book is designed to have five main movements. The story begins and ends focus on Jerusalem, first with Solomon's reign and the construction of the temple, and then in this last section ending with Jerusalem's destruction and Israel's exile to Babylon. And the story leading up to this tragedy is what makes up the center three sections which explain how Israel split into two rival kingdoms, how God tried to prevent the corruption of Israel by sending the prophets, and how exile became the unavoidable consequence of Israel's sin. From this point on, the story goes back and forth from north to south, tracing the fate of both kingdoms. Each one had about 20 successive kings, and as the author introduces each king, he evaluates their reign by a few criteria. Did they worship the God of Israel alone, or did they promote the worship of other gods? Did they deal with idolatry among the people? And did they remain faithful to the covenant like David, or do they become corrupt and unjust? And according to these criteria, the author finds no good kings in northern Israel, 0 for 20. And then in southern Judah, only 8 out of 20 get a positive rating, which connects to another huge purpose in this book, and that's to introduce the role of the prophets, key figures in Israel's history. So in the Bible, prophets were not fortune tellers. Rather, they spoke on behalf of the God of Israel, and they played the role of covenant watchdogs, which means they called out idolatry and injustice among the kings and the people. They were constantly reminding Israel of their calling to be a light to the nations, that they should obey the commands of the Torah, and so the prophets challenged Israel to repent and follow their God. In these center sections, for each king, God then raises up prophets to hold them accountable. And the most prominent prophets are the northern ones Elijah and his disciple Elisha, right here in the center of the book. Elijah was a wild man of a prophet living out in the desert, and his arch nemesis was the northern king Ahab and his Canaanite wife Jezebel. Whew, you made
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> sorry i know that's a lot but i wanted to catch us up and actually by the way so there's a whole um this is called the bible project puts together these videos there's one for every book of the bible uh and i think they're all free on youtube we linked to this video uh, on our social media uh christ community and uh, they have one for every book of the bible it's a really tremendous resource so that that kind of brought us up to speed to ahab okay we're here at ahab and if you thought Ahab, right, if you're wondering if he's going to help this whole Israel faithfulness problem, uh, you read this verse in verse 30. It says, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. So you saw the zero for 20, right? So none of these kings were good. Ahab is the worst, according to the author, right? right it's, it's one thing, to, it's just an honor to be nominated as the worst king of Israel, but to, even, to win the award is an amazing accomplishment on Ahab's behalf. And basically for the next several weeks in this series, we're going to see just how, how bad he is. But we get a couple of the highlights here in, in chapter 16. So number one, he, he marries Jezebel. Jeze- have you heard of the name Jezebel? Has anyone here named the, a child Jezebel? No. Right? This, you, don't name your, you don't name your daughter Jezebel anymore. It's because of this Jezebel. And, and she is the worst. Uh, she's like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare. She's like that on steroids. She's that bad. She's Sidonian. Uh, so she is not an, an Israelite. She's from a rival kingdom to Israel. And uh, Ahab is a very politically savvy leader. This is a political move. He uh, wants to marry. He marries Jezebel for a political alliance with another kingdom that's a little small like Israel so that they can team up and protect themselves from the larger empires and kingdoms around them is a very common practice in the ancient world. But God specifically warned his kings in the, in the law, do not do that because you will be tempted to bring in a foreign religion through your wife. He says, don't marry foreign women. And, and this is exactly what happens to Ahab. Jezebel is a, is a pagan worshiper. And she, uh, <coughs> she influences Ahab to, to dabble in, in her religion and It's like literally the first commandment that Ahab is commanded to follow is, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And he immediately blows it. And for those of you who are married in here, you know the inevitability of becoming like your spouse. I mean, it just happens. I didn't know what HGTV was. (laughs) And then I got married. And now I know it very thoroughly. (laughs) The same as Ah Right? Can you imagine being married to Jezebel every Father's Day, anniversary, birthday? It's like, I found this idol and I thought of you. And you know, put it by your bedside for me and pray, you know, try praying to it. Try to uh, see what happens. It's, it's, so over time, he succumbs to, to her influence. And of course, he doesn't stop there. Now he, he says, this is so good. I want the entire country to worship like me. So he starts encouraging this all over the kingdom, and that's, that's how bad it gets. And his new, his new favorite God, is a, is, he's called Baal. And you'll see that name throughout the Old Testament, Baal. Uh, it's in verse 32 here. And uh, Baal was a Canaanite god of the time, very popular. Uh, he was the son of the high god. He was the fertility god. He was the god of rain over the earth. And he was often represented by a bull picture. And, and we found, you can find idols, bull, bull idols all over the region uh, from this time. And uh, I, I have to, I apologize, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get graphic here for just a second, but I have to, to understand this religion. So in the Canaanite worldview, rain is Baal's seed. It's a semen and if, it, when it rains, it's his seed on the earth to, help, to make life happen. Okay, I don't know why I'm always talking about sex up here, but <laughs> I, pr- I promise this is, I mean, it's, it's not going to get better right now, but eventually it'll get better. I will stop <laughs> doing that. So, so here's why I tell you that. So the, so the primary purpose of Canaanite worship was to arouse the deity. This is why, this is what their temples did. This is where they prayed. So, that's why their, their temples were base, were brothels, but worse. So, we have evidence that, of incest, prostitution, pedophilia, bestiality, slavery, all manners of, of abuse, right? Because they have to grab the attention of Baal, get, get him to pay attention. And if that didn't work, right? If that wasn't enough, they also practiced self-mutilation, so cutting and things like that, or you could sacrifice a child. So if you ever wonder in the Old Testament why God is so adamant of the evil of this Canaanite religion, now you know why. And Ahab wants to make this the state-sponsored religion. He wants to put he puts images all over the places of worship in his kingdom so that right images of Baal, so that this kind of stuff can happen more and more conveniently all over the country. Now, you know, if you're an Israelite and you're not married to Jezebel, why would you participate in this? Why would you do that? And I just want us to get back into this world. So this is an agricultural economy, meaning you're a farmer. And if you're a farmer, what's more important to your livelihood than rain? Nothing. You know, it's like, okay, you know, Yahweh's great, the God of Israel's great, but you need a specialist for rain. A less, it's a lesser God, sure, fine, whatever. But, you, you know, you need something else. Try Baal, right? You'd, you'd think about it, maybe. You'd be tempted. And it, it gets worse, too, actually. Back in verse 34, the author talks about a guy named uh, Hiel, who is, I'm assuming, a friend of Ahab, some, some powerful person, who rebuilds the city of Jericho. Now, in the Old Testament, the city of Jericho was never to be rebuilt, ever. If that name sounds familiar, it's the first city conquered by God's people when they enter the land to take over from the Baal worshippers. It's the first city. And God says, never rebuild this city is a symbol that this religion is done. And this guy, Hiel, he rebuilds it. So basically, they're undoing what God has done. And, he, and, and Hiel appears to, to, to have sacrificed two of his sons to bless the city. You're not completely sure what the language is in in the last part of chapter 16, but it seems as if he sacrificed one son for the foundation, the laying of the foundation, and one son for the the building of the city gates. Now, there's actually evidence that this happened at the time. He would sacrifice children as, as a dedication ceremony for a building or a city to get the blessing from God. So you, you get to the end of chapter 16, and you begin to see that all the good work God wanted to do in Israel, from Abraham on, to set a people apart for himself, that would live differently, that would point to his character, right? His love, his virtue, to a dark world, to love and follow God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. All of that is undone. And Ahab seems to be programmatically doing this. It's like he has it in mind, and he's undoing it all. So that's the spiritual climate of where our story, our series begins. And God is angry. Like verse, verse 33, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. God always gets angry at evil. Always. Because if you love something, you have to hate what would harm it. That's part of what love is. God hates evil. And there's real evil in the world there was then and there is now and that's that's the first lesson i want us to look at together there's there's evil in the world okay and I, here's why I, I think that's important we, we can forget in a, in a western relatively wealthy comfortable secure suburban lifestyle we can forget that there's evil there's idolatry there's violence there's injustice and oppression the church itself is not immune to that. Spiritual leaders, in the name of God, can lead people into tremendous evil. It's, it's, it's still here. Okay, now maybe you're with me on the, yeah, people are messy and they make mistakes and we have to be careful, but at least we're not as bad as the Canaanites, right? At least there's been some moral progress from this time that we can lean on. And I, I mean, you, could, you can say that, I get it, but have we really progressed I know it looks different, but don't we still worship sex? We just did a whole sermon on lust. Do we not still put images of, of, to, to arouse desire all over the place all the time? Do we not still, right, worship the love of money or security and success? We don't get it by rain anymore, most of us. But well, that doesn't mean we don't worship at the altar of success or security or money and do we not still sacrifice our children on the altar of choice, on the altar of convenience, economic, social convenience? Do we not still offer up our families and our marriages and our relationships, our friendships on the altar of workaholism and career advancement, right? It's not, it's not as violent, but are we as different as we'd like to be? I don't think so. There's still evil here. We're still in the world of First Kings. This is still our reality. There's evil out there and there's still evil in here. So don't, don't be surprised by evil. Don't be surprised by it. Take it seriously. Look it in the eye. God certainly is not surprised because he sends Elijah. Just He's kind of like a Moses figure. Elijah is sent to speak truth to power. But unlike Moses who was sent to a foreign king to free God's people, Elijah is sent to God's people to confront them, specifically their leaders, because Israel has become just as evil, if not worse, than Egypt. So look at chapter 17, the first first verse there. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishba and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And I love how Elijah throws down in Ahab's face. He's, he gets right up in his face. And he's, he's basically like a homeless guy. I mean, he lives in the wilderness. He comes out of nowhere. And he, and he goes to the most powerful person in the country. And he basically says to him, you and me right now, let's go. If you want this, the heart of this country, you're going to have to get through me and the God who lives. Elijah says, if you think Baal is so good at making it rain for you, Let's put him to the test. Because I know there's a God who lives. So, it will not rain until I say so by God's command. And, and in the meantime, Ahab, you pray to Baal. You worship Baal. And we'll see what happens. Right? And Elijah here is not just fighting Ahab. He is fighting a worldview that is threatening to take God's people. And he has to know, he has to know that he is signing his death warrant by doing this. I imagine he's in the court of Ahab saying, hey, you're not nearly what you think you are. <laughs> and Ahab has the power and the authority to, to he, he could kill him on the spot. Elijah knows he is up against real evil that will do anything to stop him, but he obeys anyway. He obeys anyway. He chooses the truth anyway. And that's really our second, our second lesson for the day. That God's people, yes, there is evil in the world, but God's people obey anyway, even at great cost. And I can't get over how Elijah runs right toward the most powerful and dangerous man in his entire world and confronts evil for what it is. I I can't get over it. And it it reminded me of stories I heard about the Boston Marathon bombing. So you, you remember that. And I've tried to put myself in, in the chaos of that moment. You know, imagine you're, it's a, it's a sunny day, it's a normal day, there's a race going on, you're, you're participating or you're watching and suddenly bombs start going off. Right? And you, can't, you have no idea where it's gonna, what's going to happen next and I, I imagine that every instinct in your body is telling you to run away. Right? Listen for the chaos and the evil, listen for the bomb and run the other way. But do you remember shortly after that, just the stories of like doctors, police officers and first responders running toward explosions, running at evil, running at harm? That, that humbles me. And, and this is what Elijah is doing. He, he could have abandoned ship. He could have stayed in the wilderness. No, thanks God, I'm good. He could have said, "God, even if you send me these people." Nothing I can do will matter. They will not listen to me. But he doesn't do that. He obeys anyway. And God's people throughout history, at our best, we obey anyway. Even at, at, no matter what the odds, no matter what the cost, the social stigma that may come, obey anyway. And you begin to see in this book and especially the story of Israel, that God's people are not defined primarily by their belief in God. Ahab believes in God. They're defined by their love and their trust of God enough that they will obey, even when it costs something. So can we obey anyway? Can we be the first responders (laughs) the evil and injustices of our world, of our city, of our communities? Can we run toward messy people and situations? Can we run toward oppressive and unjust institutions in our society? What if we weren't afraid to tell people there is a God who lives and he loves you and it matters what you think about him? And I'll tell you this, my hope for myself in this series as I've prepared, I hope for myself, is that I find a courage like that the courage to know that there's evil and to look at it in the eye, to not run from it, to not not numb myself to it, to not ignore it, but to see it for what it is, to count the cost of what it would look like to confront it and to obey anyway. Though to be totally fair, even... Even Elijah might not be the best role model here. Even, even Elijah um, seems to go too far. God has to remind him, hey, if you don't hide, you're going to die right now. <laughs> so in verse two, it says, and the word of the Lord came to him, depart from here, like now, turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, okay, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Can you imagine Elijah nodding along, "Run, okay." To hear, "Okay, water, yeah." Birds feeding me, what? <laughs> what? Well, this is the plan. You you want me to confront Ahab, the most powerful person in Israel, and you're gonna you're gonna feed me with the with the birds. But if, if Elijah pushes back, we don't read it here. He, he he obeys. He does exactly what God says, and God proves himself by providing for Elijah. For the first time in in what will be many through this series, over and over and over again. Now you may be thinking here this morning, like, is that really believable that God would do that, that God sends ravens to feed Elijah? Now, and I want to point out, it's a good question, and it's not a modern question, okay? Any human being reading the story would have to ask themselves, is this this really true? Like, my experience of ravens is that they poop near me, but they've never brought me anything, (laughs) right? That's... (laughs) But but that is actually the point of the story. That even the ravens have the sense to obey God when Israel does not. And only a God powerful enough, much more powerful than Baal, a creator God of all, could actually accomplish this. So you see immediately God's power in this story. But he, he exercises it in the most bizarre way possible. And it stands out to me. Because it really looks like Elijah's chips are down. I mean, at the end of the story, the water runs out. And that's kind of how the story ends. What happens next is for next week. He's there eating from the birds, right? And drinking water and the water runs. And it, 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 is Elijah going to win this fight? And if you kind of go from that story, you zoom back out to God's whole plan through Abraham. It looks like he's failing. It looks like God is losing, I mean, everything he wanted to do through Abraham and the country of Israel has completely failed. They're reverting back to what they were before. And then you look at Ahab, who's God's rival here, and he is powerful, he's rich, he's smart, he's connected, and he is running a campaign of economic recovery through Baal. He's saying, let's hitch our wagon to Baal, pray to him, worship him, and we're going to laugh all the way to the bank. People want to hear that. He's building a support base in Israel, a very strong support base in Israel. And then you see, here's God's answer. It's Elijah. It's a homeless guy who says one sentence and then goes to live with birds. Here it is. (laughs) What chance does Elijah have against that kind of influence and power and pedigree? And we haven't even gotten to Jezebel yet. She's, she's more formidable than Ahab is. And it's like, this is it? I mean, be honest. You've asked that question. I know I have. Right? Like, God, what difference can I, can I make in this world? And just, just go through your top ten, right? Like, there's ISIS, there's economic collapse, there's corruption, there's racism, there's domestic violence, there's war, there's all manner of evil things. And it's like, God, what are you doing? And then there's Elijah obeying God, and God proves himself faithful. God is with him. And the author doesn't want us to miss that. Okay, God is still with us, despite everything I just said, and everything that's true of Elijah as well. God is still with us. This is the last thing I I want us to look at. Throughout this whole series, we're gonna be reminded of this. Yes, there is real evil. And yes, God's people are called to obey anyway, but we are never, ever, ever, ever alone. God is always with us. God, he's with Elijah. He's with the remnant of faithful people in Israel who we'll meet later on. He's even with the wayward part of the nation. He is trying to woo them back to himself. He has not given up on them. He hasn't even given up on Ahab. He's still trying to get that guy to repent and come in faith. And he's here. He's now. He's with you in your life. And even when hope is, seems lost, he, he's working. And, and I know because I've, I've talked to many of you And because we we all share this experience of life, right? There are there are situations in this room, there are hardships, there are pains and losses in this room, that seem right now insurmountable. They seem impossible. They seem inexplicable. If there's a God, God, where are you? What are you doing? There are parents in this room, I know, who don't know how to parent their kids anymore who've walked away from the faith that they wanted them to grow up but they don't know what to do. There are people in this room dealing with loneliness that, I, I, that they can't see a way through. And depression. I know that. There, there, are, there are people in this room who have loved ones who are, about, who, are, who are about to be lost to death. There's evil. There's evil around us and there's evil within us. And we feel that evil every day, but God is still working. He's not done. There is no situation, there's no moment, there's no heartbreak, where he is not present, where he is not healing, where he is not redeeming. God is with you. And he proved it, didn't he? He proved it. More than even just in this story. There's a reason, if you know the story of Jesus, there is a reason that one of the first names Jesus is given before he is born is what? It's Emmanuel. God is with us. He is the living proof that God does not leave you alone. He does not abandon you to your circumstance. But He's with you. He understands your pain. He understands the evil of this world better than we do. And He proves this is perhaps the most important part of Emmanuel. He proves that the way God works best is often backwards and small, and unnoticed, and inconceivable, and most of the time, it looks like losing. That's how God works best. You see, Baal, he, he, he can't even make it rain. And listen, neither can any God you might turn to in this life, in the midst of your doubt, or confusion, or pain. But Jesus poured out his own blood to rescue you from real evil and idolatry and your slavery to sin. Baal cannot bring life. But Jesus can defeat death on your behalf when he died on the cross and rose again. See, the clearest picture that no matter what, God is still with you. Is Jesus. He's with you. Believe it. Let's pray to him now. Father, even after all that's been said and and all that we've seen in your word, I, I still feel the inadequacy of my words to convey what I know is the deep love you have for everyone here and the abiding presence you promise to us. And sometimes we don't see it, sometimes we don't feel it, but God, is there. So I ask you for a gift this morning. I ask you for the gift by your spirit that we would sense and know that you are with us today. For those who know you and for those who don't, may they sense your presence in this room, in our hearts and in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.